1: Done. A person. Hey! Oh,
2: oh, no! no. Hey! hey what happened to y'all?
1: We're just trying to get to town for a hospital when this psycho started shooting at us. I-, I thought she was one of them. Hospital's no good. It's been overrun. What the hell is going on? Again, we ask everyone please stay indoors and await further instructions from the authorities. Everything will be fine. Just keep calm and stay back here.
2: Turn the perimeter lights on.
1: What do you want? What you got. We can't afford to part with any armaments. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to keep people safe. (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry.
2: Hey, folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with director Stephen Pierce about his latest film, Herd. It's a zombie film by way of today's militias. We're also joined by Dana Snyder. And for the briefest of moments, Corbin Burnson joins the call right towards the end. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Stephen, I want to start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Because you've worn a lot of hats over the years and
3: how you got into the business. I have worn a lot of hats. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, actually where we filmed Heard it was shot mostly in my hometown and my best friend growing up was like a rope swing. So I did a lot of imagining Then I went to theater school in St. Louis and ended up in New York editing or I wanted to be a director, but didn't know what I was doing, couldn't afford an editor. So I just started cutting my own stuff and then I got a job working at cable places doing online finishing for cable shows and then got some network editing jobs and got do a couple of feature films and led me towards where I finally was able to gather enough experience in the career to just direct and do that as my primary gig. What did you do on SNL? So I was on Saturday Night Live for four seasons as one of the pre-tape editors. So I'd edit the trailers, the short films, the things in there. And then I was also on as visual effects artist for, the, for whenever we launched the VFX team, where we, I was there for the first seasons for that as well. So how did Herd come about? My co-writer, James Allardyce, and I had been working on a couple of other scripts. And we were trying to find something that we could tell and we know we could produce so that we could make a first film because everything we were writing was a little bit larger scale. So we wrote two specific locations that we had available in my hometown. And we wanted to tell a story about people that are caught between different worlds. And that's our lead character, Jamie, in our world. So like caught betweens, I always feel like when I go home, I don't quite fit in any there anymore because I don't, not, I've been in the city for so long. But even here, I'm still feel I'm often viewed as a little bit of a country bumpkin. Caught between these worlds was the initial concept. And then as we got into writing and working on the piece, we realized it became more about groupthink and about how communities
2: are, can be ready to ostracize individuals. It's a zombie film. And what can you do with a zombie film? You can use it as a tapestry for a lot of different things. You can use it as a sounding board discussion, jumping off point for so many things, and I was really glad to see where the movie ended up going and have to commend you on that. Oh, thank you, man. I look, if anybody watches the movie, I honest,
3: am already so grateful because when you make shit and put it out into the world, it's just such a odd sort of experience. That you create a little thing and cultivate on it for years and then boil it and mix it together and then bake it. And then all of a sudden here it comes and somebody actually takes a moment to watch it and gives any sort of appreciation to it. It's just, it just feels
0: like a miracle. <laughs> you, throw, you do all that work and bake it and make it, and then you throw it into an ocean of other baked-made little things. Exactly
3: right, and a lot of sharks, too. I appreciate the compliment. We worked very hard on one of the things we like to operate in and the, is a stricture of a piece, if stricture's a word. If not, I just made it up, is why does a story need to be told? So this, we tried to make an entertaining story that has a value of social messaging beyond just entertainment value.
2: Now, Dana, I know your voice more than I know your physical presence inside of movies and TV. Can you tell me, how did you get involved in this film? That's a great question. I'm still asking myself. I feel like someone
0: truly made a clerical error at some point, and then it was too far past the point of going back and fixing the mistake. So rather than trying to correct themselves, they just move forward, so that the entire production didn't unravel.
3: Dana and I went to the same conservatory for acting, a Webster Conservatory in St. Louis, and so I've always known of Dana. We've circled around each other for years. At least I feel like I've been—he's been in my orbit. So we wrote this specifically, Dana. You want to? I don't know if you want to talk a little about Louis, but we wrote a character specifically for him. That's an act to. Very important kind of critical sequence.
0: Here's the thing. Here's when you know if it's a slide part. Let's go down the names of the characters. There's guys like Nail, Razor, Jamie, Hulk, Louie, which stands up. So it's like Slobby, Gooey, any of those things. I love, Dana, that you named a bunch of characters, only one of which besides your character name, actually in the movie. It's like tough names. I have a point. I don't know. <laughs> People watch this haven't seen it yet. So it's like a. only yeah, so
3: was a trivia Yeah. Just I'm waiting for anybody watching this, having heard this and be like, where the hell was
0: Razor? There, there was a care uh, Razor. You said in the back. I was naming a lot of the animals under my care. At that you could not really see. <laughs> I had a very elaborate backstory being a professional actor. All about backstory. <laughs> what was I in the middle of before I get interrupted? A lot of stuff. We meet Dana's
3: character in, he's a, he plays a veterinarian, and we meet him after one of the lead characters has broken her leg in the end of the first act, and then they go to his place to be repaired because this whole area in rural Missouri is under sort of the
0: post-apocalyptic zombie outbreak, right? So we meet Dana in a At world... the closest they're going to find to any type of medical professional. And we say that in quotes. No one's seen a dog walk out of their well. <laughs>
3: There are no, we don't make any promises for how good of a veterinary he yeah. is. That is but, true. You know,
0: he's got some rubbing alcohol and he's got a lot of cotton balls. So they figure this is better than nothing.
3: One of my favorite things is when Dana came on, because we, we you told me we met up the night before and I was like, great. So tomorrow we start with your biggest sequence. There's like a sequence in like a treatment room with a bunch of stuff and it's a, a long takes and lots of movement. And do you remember what you said, Dana? I hope I don't have any props. Exactly. Dana's, like, I went on any props. I'm, I'm allergic to props. And I was like, we might have a big problem because <laughs> you have a very long, intricate sequence with props.
0: Yeah, all this pulling out scissors and gauze and bottles of stuff and things. And oh, so <laughs> if I get a prop, my mind goes blank. Yeah. I'm just walking around going, what am I holding this bottle for? <laughs> Why is this a bot? This isn't a bottle or whatever it's supposed to be. It's always something else. It's like, Holding a ketchup bottle that has a sticker over it that says rubbing alcohol, but we did it. We did did it. We got through it. I kept waiting, Mike. kept waiting for the axe to fall. Him just turned to somebody holding the boom or something like. You could do this part, right? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I can. And not Uh saying that that didn't, Dana. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But at some point, we were shot so deep into the scene, we
3: just there was no going back. You know what I I mean? I know. They all (laughs) were looking at you. So when did you actually shoot this? We filmed this in March and April, primarily April 2022. It's been about a year and a half since we wrapped it. We finished the edit about really, the primary edit was finished in December after a bunch of testing. We did a little few pickups in October. And then we've just been waiting a little final visual effects, final legal approvals. One hilarious aspect of filmmaking is at some point, You make the thing and then you sell, at least for us, we sold the thing. It started selling internationally. We were working with trying to find our U.S. distributor and we ended up paired with Dark Sky, who was a really fantastic partner a little bit later. But throughout the process of going through delivery and sale, at some point, lawyers start watching the movie and it has absolutely nothing to do with the film whatsoever. But all of a sudden you start getting emails that are like, at this time code, two minutes, 25 seconds. There is a, you know, it's the craziest stuff like you wouldn't expect. It's like there's a book in the deep background. And look, we've done a, I've done a ton of commercials. So and so did our production designer. And he did a fabulous job making sure everything was like very brand agnostic. Once so in one of the scenes, one of the characters is wearing a shirt from got to be the 90s. They bought it at a thrift shop somewhere and there's no discernible logos anywhere on it. It has some kind of little patterns on it. And they're like, oh no, that's, we were able to find who made that shirt. And so we have to have permission for that shirt. And you're like, well, what the, what the hell are we supposed to do with that? He's in an, a 10 minute scene with that shirt. There's, we're not changing, we can't change it. There's nothing we can do about it. So There's something else.
0: Stop looking.
3: Yeah. yeah, It's just very funny. Like, before. It's, yeah, it's very funny that, you know, that at some point that happened. So for us in the process, then around, we had to do a little more visual effects. It wasn't a whole lot, but we had a, at some point we had like an air conditioner or like an air freshener that was in that you'd. Never think. You can't read it. It doesn't have a brand on it, but apparently the shape is copyrighted. And you're like, well, that's a. So we had to go out and then visual effects that. <laughs> so it's a pretty funny experience.
0: $2 million to remove one 35 cent car air freshener. It's, that's it's, how Scopus works. It is it is really crazy, but that is how it feels. Yeah. And that shirt he was talking about was, it's Charlie Brown's shirt. They it was. Yeah. Definitely. Left. Yeah. The Charles Schultz estate is very litigious.
2: But you had one of the greatest lawyers of all time working with you and Corbin Burnson. Did he just put on the Arnie hat and start arguing against them? Corbin, he didn't help us in any legal sense,
3: but I can tell you Corbin was like an absolute gem to have. Like he's a, he's such an experienced performer is such a strong creative in his own right outside of acting as a writer and director. And he. You know, for instance, like there's an opening sequence of the films with Corbin starts with Corbin Burnson, and it's our first experience with a zombie we call heps in our world. And it comes up on Corbin and he's moving around this truck and trying to evade it. And we got to this one sequence, one point in the sequence. And Corbin said, he's like, something needs to happen here. He's I need to like trip on something or make a noise. And I was like, oh, of course, it's a great idea. You're right by this. Let's put some wrenches here and make this. You were working on this tire because the car truck was on a lift. And we're like, okay, so that makes sense. And when you get to the edit, is just if we didn't have that moment, it would have just been the sequence would have been too long and it would have sagged right in the middle. You need that little moment of tension to just happen. And Corbin did that. And it's a he's a there's a reason the man is such a well-known actor and is, at least for me, highly regarded because he's he can do he takes a small moment and just brings a really fun reality and a twist to it and he's very memorable for a scene that it doesn't even have a line in and it's really that's impressive
2: so that's real talent i know that you have acted in the past you've done like i said before so many things but how was it working with actors and obviously this isn't your first rodeo having done this before
3: i love working with actors and they're all a little bit different uh, you know like some some performers like really like technical notes and that's what they respond to really well some performers really like little tricks and manipulation so it's more like an acting class and you kind of and each each like it all just depends upon the actor in the specific moment my whole philosophy when we're doing films and my hope is and this is what i'd always be preaching to the crew is look you light and you work as much as we can but when the actor is here and then the actor finds the moment that's when we're going like so if you're half lit whatever this is make this work because this is now when we're ready to go and it just because you can't you don't have time at least in our environment to recreate that special moment and there's so many they have to connect and be like truly organic awesome performance moments we wanted to make an actor's actor horror movie something with really strong performances and i think for me i think we did i feel like we we succeeded in that realm and that was because we took the the performance first, and Brennan, our DP, was very skilled at realizing when we had to just, oh, we're going to have to pivot and
2: do something faster here, you know? Dana, other than props, what were some of your biggest challenges on this one?
0: Lines, blocking, connecting with the other actors, costuming, I had some issues. Other than that, it was pretty
2: smooth sailing. I really think I knocked it out of the park. I thought you did a fantastic job, and... Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever considered a career in veterinary sciences, but after this experience, no.
0: I really had some thoughts about it. And then I said, I decided no. Dana is a perpetual smartass. So I'll jump in and say, his
3: character comes in because initially, why would you have a Dana in there? It's also his voice is so recognizable. You don't want it to take people out. And I was like, for me, it works perfectly because the movie could be. So heavy, and it is pretty heavy in aggregate. But in that sequence, it is a pretty intense sequence coming out of another intense sequence. And Dana just has an ability to even, even when he's playing it straight, he can't play it fully straight. He's got always a little, a little edge and a smart ass to him that just comes through. It works perfectly for me. It just cuts right through what could be like a saccharin molasses sort of emotion, and it makes it just gives it a little lift and a little bit of energy. And only
0: Dana can do that. I will say I was shocked that I did not stick out more. I thought, <laughs> like, oh, God, here comes. You're going to hear the circus music playing in the background. And... Well, yeah, it was all right. Yeah, no, I th- you were worried about that. I think we talked about
3: that. I was like, don't worry. You're going to be just fine, <laughs> man.
0: <laughs> I trusted you. I just didn't believe you. And I thought. That's all the director asks. You don't have to believe me. You just got to trust me. <laughs> yeah. That I implicitly did, did. And we <laughs> had a wonderful time while I was there. For what was going on on screen, we were basically just giggling the whole rest of the time. <laughs> yeah,
3: much like this. It does, in case you can't tell, our mood is not always very intense. While we were making very dramatic, it could be dramatic piece. The whole town, we shot this in a town called Poplar Bluff, Missouri, is where I grew up, is a small town of about 20,000 people. We basically took over this comfort inn for a month, and people would, actors would come in and go out. And I, the day that Dana arrived was one of the best days because everybody would go back to the hotel and have a couple of drinks in the lobbies. They didn't
0: have a they bar. Turned, to, they turned the free breakfast bar into their private bar at people. It's like them. even Clubhouse. So when I came
3: home, I was always late because I'd be working through dailies and shotless for the next day and anything else that was coming up for the next, I'd be about an hour or two hours behind everyone else, the crew. And then I'd come in with James and we'd roll into the lobby and everybody's had a drink and like sit around. But I remember the night Dana came in, he's like sitting in the middle of the lobby and there's just a big U shape of people from the community, people that don't know who they are, that are just staying in the hotel and all the cast and crew and just sitting right in the front is dana being like and then that's right that is where it is. Just, just like telling stories and holding court for the whole whole group so the whole week you were there dana it was like i think everybody still talks about that from the whole town as being like there was just
0: like it was stand-up comedy night every night at the comfort yeah we blew in a little hot quinn gresher when i came in he drove me from the airport we had we stopped at uh, whatever it was, the TGI Fridays before we got there. So we were <laughs> totally taken aback to walk in this hotel lobby and there's 40 people crammed into the breakfast bar drinking weird branded off brand off-brand bottles of vodka and beer I've never heard of. And, you yeah, know, Dana, that was, it it was, was good, great. Everybody was, was great. Yeah, it was a wonderful time.
2: So much of the movie revolves around Ellen Adair and her character. Can you tell me what it was like working with her and how she got involved in the project?
3: Ellen's a dream. Ellen, they are the best, one of the best actors I've ever worked with. They just are so prepared. I met them on auditions. Like, they were part of our casting call. And they, I think the casting saw a few thousand people. And the first time I saw Ellen, I was like, okay, she can embody it. Like, really? And they. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to describe how prepared Ellen is all the time and such an easy person to work with. And she just totally, this character, the way she always said it, she'd tell you, I believe that they always play Republican individuals and women in like TV shows and films. So this echoes her life experience and life vision much more as a character. So they were very excited about it. And I I would work with Ellen any day. They're amazing.
0: And tell me loves, a little. Ellen loves the Phillies. As Jay told me all about Ellen. Yeah. Ellen is a super Phillies fan. Yes,
3: they
2: and, are. Hey, oh my God, look at this face. Mr. Britson, it's great uh, meeting you, as it were, through this medium. So thank you so much for being part of this.
1: Can you tell me how you got involved in this project and how you found this character? I can't quite tell you how I got involved. I don't know if they came to me with an offer or my managers, who I always tell go look for interesting things, and they reached out, but somehow we got together, which is the important part. And uh, the character was maybe, I don't know if you've seen the film. There wasn't an extraordinary amount for me to invest a lot of, um, you know, just it needed, it was a function really more than anything. Starts the film, which is interesting. I'd, Something I always try to tell my sons where screenwriting started with a bang, and literally it starts with a bang. And then you realize, and again, I don't want to give away a lot, there is a backstory to my relationship with my daughter that drives the narrative forward, but I don't want to give away a lot there to people who might not have seen the film yet. But there, in all good horror movies, sometimes there's not a lot of room to go beyond that, which you actually need to to make it work which is the important thing. So I would say watch the film, and I'm not as bad a guy as it makes me out to be. That was my take. That's how I would play it if I had more scenes. Yeah, Simo was telling me that you brought a lot to the role, including
2: the whole idea of the wrench dropping, adding a little bit of tension to that
1: opening yeah, scene. i would glad to see that in there, guys. That looks, it's, the film's great. They had sent me a link. I hadn't seen it yet, and I know it's been screening all over the place. And I, honestly, I would do this anyway. And tell you I liked it, but I honestly really enjoyed the film and especially the little twist on the relationship of the women. And I like, hey, if you could do another ten minutes on horror films, I'd say find a way to bring me more in to confront my daughter confront me a little bit more than postmortem. But that's the, the sequel. He'll come back as a ghost zombie, something. <laughs> I was waiting for him when he's lying there dead to sit up, but (laughs) it's a weird part when it's a name and you're in there and you're in there and you're in the credits. And I realized part of it is I'm being very straight and I hope it's okay with you guys. It's to help get the film there. I'm glad the film started with me, but you, sometimes you realize it also, it's my time availability and how much time I have to really commit to a project. But this, these guys here, I'll tell you anything they want to do. I want to go a little deeper, but I've already told them that.
3: Yeah, it's Corbin's fault that I'm in this movie. That's something we never really talk about, and that was actually happened by absolute accident. We had dinner the first night you came in, you yeah. Ellen Mitzi and I, and Mitzi plays yeah, Alex. Right. You were like, "I love the script. I think the script's great. The ending was too fast. It needs something here to be like an explaining without going into too much detail. You like, you need one more scene here." And then I was like he's totally right. And I talked to James about it and we're like, yeah, well, we're definitely going to do this. And we started trying to write a little scene and a way to do it. And we were going to do it here, but we had, had to come with this hospital, which we only had for a certain amount of time. Right, We're right. going to figure it out. And, and I kept trying to hire an actor for like two weeks where we didn't have anything written. And then all of a sudden it just, we had a rain day, like a following, we had a week where we're supposed to shoot the hospital the following week. But then we had a rain day that we had to reassign a week earlier and we couldn't lose. So we called the hospital. Oh, magically, they can get us in tomorrow. So now we're shooting this scene tomorrow. And I wrote it in the, I wrote in the grip truck and I wrote it in the grip truck on the drive down to the hospital and was trying to get on with a, a, and we were going to have one of the ward the the costume designer play the role because I didn't want it to be me or anybody. And, uh, but she'd never acted before. She'd never done anything. And we were getting medical jargon at the last second. And I was like, if somebody's going to screw up and look like a dumbass, it's going to be me.
1: (laughs) I've got to tell you a funny story that's like that. Just very quickly, Roger Corman, the famous Roger Corman, who I blessed to know a lot as I grew up and worked around him. My godfather introduced my parents, became my godfather, worked with Roger on a lot of those early films. He did some knockoff of Creature from the Black Lagoon, and they all show up at Zuma Beach on the morning, 12 of them with whatever carrying equipment out to the beach, making his $12 movie. And the guy who's supposed to be the lagoon black lagoon, the creature, doesn't show up. So he goes to my godfather who doesn't know anything and says, You're jump in the suit. You're gonna be the creature. You I'm supposed to bring them food. Fuck them. They don't need food. You jump in the suit. You know, what do I do? He goes, go, ah. <laughs> and that's he's in the creature of the black lagoon. <laughs> but you know, that's to me really, that's some of the fun of filmmaking. The figuring, the puzzle solving at the last second. Steven, I know we need to wrap up, but What's next for the film? Where is it playing now,
2: and where can people see this? So the film premieres at New York Comic Con on
3: October 12th, and then it'll be out digitally and theatrically in the U.S. on October 13th. There's lots of markets where you can see it in theaters, which is how I always dreamed people would see it, even being a small film. So if you're interested, you can check out for where you can stream, purchase, or watch it in theaters or online at herd.film, H-E-R-D.film.
2: Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate this. Uh, it was really nice meeting you, Mike. Thank you.